Good morning, everyone. It is nice to be back with you. I want to thank you for praying for Carol and myself as we were away for a week. We had the joy of being in Orlando, Florida, where we attended a national conference with pastors and Christian leaders, and it was just a joyful time to be with folks from across the country and in many places around the world. And the Lord had additional blessings tucked in for us. I got to see my youngest brother and his wife for the first time since February of 2019. So we got to spend some time together and catch up and and share sweet memories together. They had recently moved to St. Augustine, Florida, and so it worked out well that we could arrange time as we were there. And then we got to spend some time as a sort of family reunion, if you will, of people that I started out in ministry with a long time ago. In fact, some of them I met in college when we were all involved with the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ and just reminiscing and talking about what the Lord has done over these wonderful years since we were last together in college. And it's fun to hear how the Lord is keeping his people steadfast. And so I thank you for praying for us. I thank you for the opportunity to get away. Uh, time of refreshment for both of us, and we look, we're so glad to be back to be able to celebrate Easter week with, with all of you. Well, the late, great Winston Churchill was once asked, doesn't it thrill you to know that every time you make a speech, the hall is packed to overflowing? Oh, it's quite flattering, said Sir Winston, but whenever I feel that way, I always remember that if instead of giving a speech I was being hanged, the crowd would be twice as large. (laughs) There's a certain attractiveness and humility, especially when it comes from a person in authority, a person of importance, a person of influence. Winston Churchill was no saint, but he was wise enough to recognize that the crowd that is with you now, when things are going their way, can quickly become a crowd that turns against you when things stop going the way that they prefer. And as we look at in our text this morning, as we stand at the beginning of Easter week, the crowd that can shout, Hosanna, can quickly change to cries of crucify in just a short period of time. Now, in the history of the church, it has been an important part of our understanding of who Jesus is to see him as the fulfillment of three important biblical offices prophet, priest, and king. As the one who is the ultimate revelation of God, as the one who is God himself in the flesh, Jesus Christ is the central focus of God's revelation. He's the apex of the storyline of God's eternal plan for the salvation of sinners. And if he is the apex of God's plan and we belong to him, then we should never be ashamed to carry the name Christian, which means little Christ. Because as we do so, we align ourselves with the one who is at the center, the heart, and even the soul of creation, who gives ultimate meaning in the universe. Well, the text that we're going to look at this morning, as you know, for a couple of weeks, we're taking a step outside of our ongoing study, step by step, to the book of Matthew to celebrate Easter. We are going to jump back into Matthew, but in a different place this morning. And we're going to look at how Jesus is fulfilling these important roles. In the text that we will see this morning, we will see clearly Jesus as king and as prophet. And it is good for us that he is those things because unless he is, we cannot be saved. And so the fact that he has fulfilled these biblical offices 
shows that he is the true Savior, the true Son of David, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. So it's a good way for us to begin this, which is the most important week in the history of mankind, that last final week of Jesus before going to the cross. So I invite you this morning. This is a story that we know, many of us very well. But I invite you this morning to just ask the Lord to refresh your mind, refresh your heart, refresh your thinking as we read this passage and as we look at it this morning. And as I invite you to stand as we read it now, Matthew 23, verses 1 to 13. And the beautiful and truthful word of God says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den robbers this is the word of the lord let us receive it for its intended message this morning please be seated and let us pray father i pray that as you work in and through us this morning and as your word is open that we would be mindful of your greatness and your goodness and that we would find our hearts symbolically waving the palm branches to our king and then bowing our knees before you as our prophet and our priest and thanking you for all that you have done for us and that this Easter week, this holy week where we commemorate the most important events in the history of mankind, that you would stir our hearts and our minds to love you ever more, to seek you ever closer in a relationship of truth and faithfulness and trust that we might obey you and serve you all the more because you are so good. Would you be our teacher this morning as you guide us by your spirit, as we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as you follow along in your sermon outline, I hope you'll be taking notes this morning. You can certainly follow along on the church app. Those of you that are joining us online, good morning. We're glad that you are with us this morning as we study this word together. We're thankful for the technology that allows it to happen. And so... I invite you as well to wherever you might be, open your copy of God's Word to Matthew 21, and let's study together. The first main point that we see this morning is the arrival of the King, the arrival of the King. 
And this will be the main point of the passage, is to show that Jesus, in fact, is the king over the kingdom of heaven that he has inaugurated and he has brought in. As a king, he shows that he is in charge and why he came and what he intended to do during his earthly sojourn here as the Messiah. So as the king, the first thing we see is that he sets the stage. He sets the stage. Let's pick up our reading of our passage this morning. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now in our study going through the gospel according to Matthew, we see the the opposition starting to build, and we've arrived in the middle of chapter 13, but we can see that as crowds are getting interested in who Jesus is, the opposition is growing, and Jesus has been spending the bulk of his time up until Matthew 13 in Galilee. But he is determined that he must get to Jerusalem, and to Jerusalem he shall go. And that has been the goal all along, and now we find him going into Jerusalem because he knows he needs to go there to fulfill all that was said about him in the law and the prophets, that Jerusalem would be the city where the ultimate consummation, if you will, would be fulfilled of the redemption of men by the grace of God through the ministry of his son. And he passes by the village of Bethphage, <clears throat> located just a few miles to the east of Jerusalem. It's a village near the little town of Bethany, and it's located on the Mount of Olives, a place of prophetic significance in Jewish eschatology. In fact, it'll be a good study for you to take on in your own time, study different important biblical events that happen on mountains. For both in the Old Testament and in the New, there are many important things that happen on mountains. And something very important is about to happen near this mountain that is talked about this morning. A king is coming in victory into the city. Now, this was planned on the part of Jesus. The city would have been full of people because Passover was near. Many undoubtedly would have heard of his miracles, would have heard of his teaching. And in fact, Jesus had raised Lazarus from that nearby city of Bethany. And so many would have heard about what he had done, and many would want to come and see, and many of them just want to obey what is required of them over the feast of Passover. And so Jesus knows that now is the time to reveal that which has been held in secret for some time, that he is the Messiah. Now he will make clear who he is and what it means that he is the Messiah and what he came to do, what he came to accomplish in his obedience to the Father and fulfillment of the prophets as he came to challenge the status quo, to fulfill the plan of God and to redeem those that were in bondage to sin. But he would do it in his terms and in his way and in a way that would counteract the misunderstandings of the people. So somehow Jesus has prearranged the availability of the animals needed for this occasion. He would have gone in and out of the city. He would have been interacting with many people. Perhaps it was during one of those times he had met the owners and arranged things. We don't know the details, but we can be sure that Jesus did. And he gives them to us. He sends two disciples into a nearby village. He says, go to so-and-so and get a donkey and a colt. Untie them and bring them to Jesus. And then he says, if anyone says anything to you, which I find kind of humorous because... 
two people that are unknown walk into an area and they start unleashing two animals, of course someone around is going to say, who are you and what are you doing? And he says, if they ask you, you say, the Lord needs them. Maybe this was a type of password. Maybe this was a prearranged way of allowing this transaction to take place. But perhaps it's just an expression of Jesus as Lord over everything, even a few obscure animals in a small city. Jesus knows he is the one through whom all things were created, and he is the Lord over animals and over men, and he's the Lord over your life and mine. And if the Lord has created you, if the Lord has redeemed you, if the Lord has placed his spirit within you, if the Lord has written your name in the Lamb's book of life, then it can be said of us that the Lord needs us. Not because he really needs us, because he's all-sufficient, because he wants to use us in the carrying out of his plans. And ultimately, we belong to him. And ultimately, we're to make ourselves available to him. He's setting the stage. Secondly, as the king, he fulfills the scripture. Our text continues, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Jesus has prearranged these events, and now we know why, because what was typical in his ministry, he came to fulfill that which had been promised about him through the law and the prophets. He declared as much in John chapter 5 and verse 39 that the scriptures testify to him. He came to fulfill, as he said many times in the gospel according to Matthew, to fulfill all that was written about him in the law and the prophets. And no detail can be left out, including how he would enter the city that day. Well, who is it that was entering the city that day? It was Jesus who comes in, as it were, with a triumphal posture of royalty. He is, after all, a king. He is the promised king. He is the one who has come to establish the kingdom of heaven. Yes, it's inaugurated at first, it's, it's introduced, it is starting to advance, and one day he'll return and it will be completely brought in, and he will reign gloriously forever and ever over the new heavens and the new earth. But he's a king, and he's coming, and he rides in on a donkey, on a beast of burden. He doesn't come riding in on a war horse, he comes in on a beast of burden. Yes, he's a king. Yes, he's bringing a victory. But this victory would be bought through humiliation and suffering and sacrifice. And on that day, he entered one city. But what he did in that one city would be global in its impact, universal in its effect, and eternal in its results. He came, this time on a donkey, for peace and salvation. Now, one thing you notice as we look at how Matthew, as he is arranging his account, he quotes from the prophets, but he does something unusual here. He adds one phrase from Isaiah 62, 11, and actually takes out one phrase from Zechariah 9, verse 9, which was the main passage that he was drawing from. Isaiah 62, verse 11 says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Matthew, as he is keen to do from beginning to end, draws attention to the fact that Jesus is the promised king and that his kingship is related to salvation. 
And that would not be lost on his first readers, predominantly the Jewish people of his day, through whom Matthew's trying to show that Jesus is the Messiah. And if you allow your mind to move back with me as we go back to the beginning of our study in the Gospel according to Matthew, what do we see right away in chapter 1, verse 21? As the angel appears to Joseph, he says, She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That he has come from the beginning for salvation, bringing salvation. And, of course, he had to accomplish that by living a perfectly righteous life for the entirety of his human existence. And now he will come and offer himself as the perfect sacrifice. So Matthew borrows a phrase from Isaiah 62 to show that we should have our attention focused on why he came this first time, which is for salvation. But he leaves out a phrase in Zechariah 9, verse 9, which points to the fact that Jesus is going to be coming in judgment one day. And if you combine Zechariah 9, 9 with the verse that follows, we find words like, he will come and cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow, bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. And so Matthew knows that there is a, as it were, a double fulfillment, if you will. There is the fulfillment of what Jesus comes when he comes the first time, bringing peace and salvation and the age of grace, and the offer that goes out to all, and the call that goes out to, to repent and believe. But side by side in the Old Testament, Jesus will return one day, not on a donkey, but on a war horse. Not coming in peace, but coming to execute the righteous judgment of God and to vindicate the people of God. So this time he comes, not with warfare, not on a war horse, but on an animal who is the beast of burden. It's appropriate, even though the people in the first century didn't understand it, they were not happy about the situation that they were in. They were languishing under Roman oppression, languishing under occupation, languishing under high taxation. They were looking for a Messiah who would come and be a liberator, who would be a military ruler, conqueror, who would come riding in and liberate them from the oppression that they were experiencing. And here he comes riding in on a donkey as a humble man, as a humble leader, as the Prince of Peace. The religious leaders of that day knew nothing of such a leader. They did not expect anything of the sort. They wanted a real man of the world. They wanted a military leader. They wanted to be on top again. They wanted their oppressors thrown off. They wanted to have liberation from the Romans. But Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He knows he's fulfilling prophecy as the promised king of Israel. He knew what kind of king he was. But this time when he came, he would be a lowly servant, and yet a king who has all authority over heaven and earth. He would come and suffer and die at the hands of men, and yet he knew that he would inherit and be given a kingdom, according to 2 Samuel 7, that will endure forever. He would come first in peace and later in judgment. He comes now on a donkey to bring peace to the nations, to send us out to be his ambassadors, to preach the gospel, to make the offer of salvation clear, to say today is the day of favor. Today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe while you have the opportunity because one day when he returns, it'll be too late and he will come and execute the perfect justice of God. And so Jesus comes in, he's riding on this colt, 
and the foal of a colt. I find it interesting that the mother of the colt was brought along, perhaps to bring comfort to this animal who had never been ridden upon. But notice that this is a colt that doesn't buck, doesn't revolt, it doesn't reject the one who is on his back. Perhaps instinctively he understands who it is that he's carrying, the one that had created him. And we know that the role of a donkey is to bear the burdens of others. Well, this young donkey had never borne anyone's burdens before, and now here he's carrying the most important person in human history, the one who came, who would carry the burdens of others to the cross, the one who would come and bear our burdens so that we might have forgiveness and relief and hope and eternal life to all who call upon him as Savior and Lord. Jesus is coming. It's a living parable, but it's a real thing that as he comes, he's offering salvation. He is fulfilling scripture. And the result is he elicits praise. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Look at what the people are doing. They're placing their garments, which were of great value, on these animals. They put them on the ground. They understand that there's the arrival of royalty. At least, nothing better than perhaps they understand, better than they know. In joyful service to Jesus, the people give a makeshift red carpet service, allowing the king to pass in honor, a practice that continues in many cultures today where we roll out the red carpet for the arrival of someone who is coming who is worthy of dignity and of fanfare. But I want to ask this question this morning. Does Jesus receive the red carpet service in your life? Do you rejoice in Christ coming to you? Do you rejoice that he is your king? Do you roll out the best that you have to offer because he is the greatest there is to give? Does Jesus receive that response from us? You know, the little children were going around waving the palm branches, and how many of us wanted to jump up and start waving with them? What is happening in our hearts? Do we have that response to Jesus? Well, we're excited about who he is and we want to welcome him. You may notice that there are two crowds that are mentioned here. There seems to be a crowd that was coming with Jesus or behind him. Perhaps they've been accompanying him all the way to Jerusalem and they're coming for the Passover. But there also seems to be a crowd in front of him, perhaps composed of those who are in the city. But now they hear the celebration and so they turn back and say, what's happening? And so they come together and there's a celebration. There's noise, there's rich symbolism, there is a, a festival going on. People are drawn to Jesus. They want to celebrate who Jesus is. And even today, we see people coming to Jesus from all directions. And one of the, the benefits or blessings that I find in going to a conference is seeing people coming from all these different places around the country and around the world. And they don't look the same, and they're not of the same body types and shapes and colors and melanins and all those things, but they have the same Savior. And people are drawn to Jesus, and he'll continue to draw people to himself. People are looking for hope, for purpose, for meaning, for life, 
the things that can only be found in Jesus, who is the author of life. If this morning you come and you find your heart heavy, if you're looking for acceptance or for forgiveness, you're looking for a, a reason to keep on going, a reason to wake up tomorrow, if you're looking for a reason to have hope, look to Christ, who even today is the one who can provide all of those things and much more, a personal relationship with the living God and the hope of eternal life. Now, the verb tenses that are used here indicate that this cheering and this shouting had been going on for some time. So I want you to imagine the noise that's going on, and some of us can, can, when we're in a place that's noisy for a while, the ears start to ring and they start to buzz. I want you to imagine that this morning, that that's what's happening to the people that are there. The noise that is going on, there's a fervor. As the, the people are thinking, perhaps now, perhaps now is the time of our liberation. Now is the time of our victory. Now we will throw off the oppression of the Romans. And so they shout, Hosanna to the Son of David. Quoting, as we read in our invocation passage this morning from Psalm 118. And the word Hosanna means save us. That's an appropriate thing to shout out to Jesus. Matthew doesn't miss an opportunity to once again show how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and how the Jewish people should recognize who this Jesus is, the ultimate son of David. If we were to take time to go back to the story that happens just before this one, we'll see that Jesus encounters two blind men as he's leaving the city of Jericho, and they cry out and say, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus, in his mercy, he heals their physical blindness. And we're told that they jumped up and they followed him with gratitude and great joy. Well, here we see the crowd referring to the son of David again. But their response will be a little different. Because in the events that follow, it shows that they're still in spiritual blindness. Jesus has healed physically blind eyes, and he is able to heal spiritually blind eyes because of what he'll do on the cross. But those two men, they had their physical blindness taken away, and they were given spiritual sight. And here's the crowd that is crying out for physical liberation and missed the main point for why Jesus came. And so just in a few days, the Hosanna will change to cries of crucify. My friends, when you hear about the wonders of God and what he has done, and if you've seen him operate acts of mercy in your own life, ask the Lord to open your eyes to see his beauty once again, to be refreshed by who he is and what he can do, that he is the ultimate son of David. So that the response will be as we come to that awareness, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We know that in the scriptures when it talks about someone coming in the name of, he comes to represent that person, to share the words of that person, to be almost, as it were, as an ambassador, which is, in fact, what we're called to be in Christ. We represent Christ wherever we go. Jesus was coming to them in the name of the Lord, representing the Lord, but was even greater because he was the Lord himself coming to them. And if it's the Lord himself who is coming to them, of course he is worthy to be praised. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even Hosanna in the highest. Could be loosely translated, let the highest realm of angels around the throat of God pour out praises to him. There's a subtle reference to the divinity of Christ. 
Hosanna, praises, saviors, save us to the one ultimately who can bring all of those things in. Jesus is that Messiah. He is that king. So the people are waiting. They're expecting victory. And Jesus will bring them victory. At least to those who have eyes to see. But as the events of the weeks to come show, they did not understand the true nature of their need. They did not understand the true nature of the victory that he would accomplish. The celebration would have been going on for a while. And as we continue on, it tells us that the city itself was stirred up. You can get the picture in your mind. The crowd, the chanting, the palm branches, the singing, the city is stirred. But frankly, the word stirred is a little too weak here. It really should be translated as shaken. The city's being shaken, metaphorically. They don't know what to make of this king of the Jews. That's not the type of king they expected, but their expectations were misguided. Jesus is coming in and the city is shaken. But this is not the first time that the events of Jesus would shake the city. When it came time for the birth, the announcement of his birth, and the magi come to worship him, we are told that the whole city was shaken and stirred up. We're told at the time of his crucifixion that the earth literally shook as creation itself is reacting to what's happening within the Godhead as God the Son is bearing the sin of God's people, enduring the wrath of God the Father against that sin. It'll be shaken again as on the third day, the angel descends, the rock is rolled away, and Jesus emerges victoriously from the tomb. So on this important morning, almost 2,000 years ago, something important is happening. The city is shaking. The king has come. But Jesus is also a prophet, and he came with the authority of the prophets. And so our text continues, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Yes, he was a king. But in response to the noise and the celebration as it's continuing on, people are curious about who is this Jesus? And it's an important question. Jesus himself would ask of his disciples, who do you say that I am? And that is the most important question that we will ever hear. And we need to consider the question carefully. Because how we answer that question will determine where we spend all of eternity. Who do you say that I am? Who is this? Well, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. We might say, well, he's a prophet. Yes, he is a prophet. The fulfillment of the prophets. He's not ashamed to take the title of prophet. We see different examples in the book of Matthew where he refers to himself as a prophet, or others refer to him as a prophet, or he's even spared, at least for a time, persecution because he is a prophet. Of course, all of that's under God's control. And so what does Jesus do as a prophet? Well, he does what all prophets do. He speaks for God. Who is this? Well, this is the prophet Jesus. They don't yet have a full understanding of his nature, nor the significance of what he's come to do, but they recognize that there's something unique about him, something powerful, something blessed of God, even a prophet. And the people were waiting for the arrival of the prophet. Going all the way back to the time of Moses, 
as Moses is preparing the people to go into the land of promise on the plains of Moab. He's explaining to them the law, the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy. And it was said that the Lord, let me find my place, says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So the promise came through Moses that a prophet would come. And this prophet, we're told, this, this Moses-like prophet would have to do at least what Moses did. And at the end of Deuteronomy, what did Moses do? He spoke with God face to face, and he performed great wonders. And those two things find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He said that he was greater than Solomon, greater than Jonah, greater than all the prophets. He said that Moses said that he was coming. So he's making this great claim, yes, you're waiting for the prophet, I'm here. And the early church recognized that. In Acts chapter 3, as Peter is under great pressure of persecution, is preaching the gospel, he testifies that Jesus is the one that was promised of God. You have it listed on the screen, Acts 3, 22 to 24. I'm just going to read it. Moses said, this is Peter quoting. I'm quoting Peter, who's quoting Moses. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And Peter goes on. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these the early church understood that Jesus was that promised prophet who would come and speak for God. A few chapters later, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is giving his life as a testimony to Christ. And he affirms the truth, citing this very same verse out of Deuteronomy, that Moses predicted the coming of Jesus. So it's appropriate for the people to refer to Jesus as a prophet, because he did come and speak the words of God all throughout his ministry. There's much more we could say on that, but let's move on. He not only spoke for God, he acts for God. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. The role of the prophet is to speak for God. And the prophet also performs works of God to point people to God. And the people had already heard about the work that Jesus had done. They'd heard about his word. Everywhere he went, there'd be a discussion of who he was and what he was. And the word prophet was often on the lips of the people who came to see him. It's no different here. He is the prophet who was to come. He did speak the, wor the words of God, and he has performed the works of God and the miracles that he performed, and the healings, and in the people he set free from bondage and sickness and oppression. But there's one more work of God that he's going to perform. And Jesus entered the temple. Jesus enters the temple. He observes all that is happening on the temple grounds. People are coming from long distances to offer their sacrifices, to give their offerings in the temple. But they would have to buy the animals that were offered there. They perhaps would bring their animals, but those animals were often not accepted because they were no longer healthy 
and full by the time they would get to Jerusalem. So they would have to buy the animals that were available in the temple grounds for the sacrifice. In addition, if they came from the outer regions of Judea or Galilee or outside of Jerusalem itself, they would often come with Roman currency, which was not allowed into the temple because on the coins of the Roman currency, there were pictures and images of emperors and Roman gods. So they would have to take their money and they would have to exchange it with the temple, uh, exchange it in the temple to buy the shekels that could be used in the temple. And you can imagine then that the money changers are making a nice profit off of those who have come from great distance. And then they would go into the court of the Gentiles and they would buy their animals. And of course, supply and demand being what it is, as there was great demand, the price for those animals would go up. The person would have to pay to get an animal, would have to pay to exchange his money, would have to pay more because it was a thief. The whole system reeked of greed and exploitation and profiteering. And frankly, the whole situation just reeked, period, because it was full of all those animals. And all of this is happening in the place that was to be set apart for holiness and consecration. And so the Lord takes matters into his own hands, and he begins to cleanse the temple. He challenges everybody, both those selling and both those buying. And special attention is drawn to those that were selling pigeons and doves because those were the only sacrifices that the poor could afford. And here they're being exploited in the house of the Lord. And so tables start to fly. Coffers are knocked over. Animals scurry about. People are shouting and scurrying from one end to the other. It's pandemonium everywhere. But don't miss what Jesus is doing. He is acting out judgment on the temple. Judgment against the people for what they are doing. And he's giving the warning that if they do not repent and believe, that that very temple itself would be brought down. An event that happened in history during the invasion of Jerusalem from 66 to 70 A.D. Jesus is the prophet who executes judgment. And he gives the reason for his righteous anger. My house shall be called a house of prayer. He's quoting here from Isaiah chapter 6, 66. And in that, passage, uh, that portion of that prophetic book, it speaks of God's salvation designed for the nations. That even the Gentiles would be allowed into the temple. And that God is to be honored in his house by people coming from all the nations. But all of this is taking place in the courtyard of the Gentiles. And that was the only place where the Gentiles could actually go in and pray. And so in the very place where the Gentiles were to come in and pray and serve the Lord is the one place that is being desecrated by the practices of what was going on. And it was the priestly class that was exploiting everyone who came to offer a sacrifice. Surely this could not fail to garner the attention of one who came as the fulfillment of the prophets. It's not just that they were buying and selling animals in Jerusalem. That needed to happen for them to offer their sacrifices. Is that it was happening in the temple itself. And Jesus, as he is cleansing the temple, is fulfilling again a promise that was given in Zechariah, a day when we were told that there would be no more traitors 
in the house of the Lord. The people had an expectation that the Messiah would come and purify the temple and Jesus is coming to do it. But because it didn't meet their expectations, they missed what he was doing. This place that was to be a house of holiness and devotion and dedication has become a place of greed and profiteering. Jesus came as a prophet who speaks the word of God. And he came as the very word of God in the flesh. And therefore, he's the ultimate prophet. And as he is cleansing the temple of corruption and exploitation, he declares, I am Lord of the temple. Just like he had said, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I am Lord of all that is taking place. And he knows who he is. He knows that he is the ultimate temple and meeting place between God and man. John in chapter 1 says that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is the ultimate meeting place between man and God. And the only meeting place between man and God. He is the prophet. He is the king. And very briefly, we're going to consider the action of the priest. Jesus is the king who comes to rule, but first he will save. And he rules in our lives today. And one day he will rule over all the nations. Jesus is the prophet who speaks for God and performs the works of God because he is, in fact, God in the flesh. And this king and this prophet will fulfill the final role that he has, that of priest, even the high priest, in the days that follow these momentous events on that Palm Sunday oh so long ago. As the king, he rules over the temple. As the prophet, he rules, he rebukes the sin that is in the temple. And as the priest, he will cleanse the sinners in the temple so that they can be in a right standing before God. In just a few days, he will boldly face his accusers and declare himself to be the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of the Jews, the Son of God. In the face of all that religious leaders and, and political leaders could throw at him, the worst that they could perform, he will perform his duties as the ultimate priest of God and accomplish the victory of God for his people. How will he do that? Well, in part, he will do what a priest does. He will pray for the people. We know the role of the priest is to offer the sacrifices and it's to intercede for the people. And in just a few days, Jesus, as he enters into the city, will pray for the city, saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, that's what the people had just said on that Palm Sunday. But they weren't ready to accept him for who he really is. They didn't recognize him for what he had come to do. And so in a few days' time, they will kill him. And the city will fall under judgment. But one day, one day they will say the same thing. And this time they will mean it. One day we believe that God has a work yet to do in a great ingathering of the Jewish people 
into his great family, and they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We hold out hope, the ultimate hope of the ultimate salvation of the people of Jerusalem one day. Secondly, as the priest, he offers the sacrifice. Not only does Jesus pray for those who persecute him, who torture him, who are his enemies, he will offer forgiveness to the one hanging on the cross next to him. But not only will he offer the ultimate sacrifice for sin, he himself will be the ultimate sacrifice for sin, offering in himself the payment required of God for the sin of sinners. For our sake, he will endure the wrath of God, the cruelty of men, the wicked machinations of the devil. He will suffer great physical pain, and yet that physical pain will not compare in the least to the spiritual pain he will endure as he bears the wrath of God for our sin. As God the Father pours out his just wrath against sin. And that is the hope of the gospel. That is the gospel message summarized as Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The king and the prophet will become the great high priest who will fulfill the justice and the plan of God. As we begin Easter week, this week, my friends, will you see Jesus as your king, as your prophet, as your priest? If this morning you are secure in Christ, you can have the hope of eternal life, forgiveness of sin, a right standing before God, assurance of his presence, freedom from the past, strength for the present, and hope for the future. I hope this week praise will pour from your lips. What a wonderful Savior we have. Because as we celebrate this week, Easter, events of Holy Week, the most important one in the history of the world, we have a great gospel to proclaim to others. And as we anticipate remembering Jesus in his sufferings at our Good Friday service on Friday, and as we celebrate him in his resurrection next Sunday morning, what are some lessons that we can ponder this week from today's sermon? Well, first, because Jesus is our king, we will follow his leadership and serve him joyfully. There is a groaning in the land a groaning for good leadership. And that groaning is shared by people across the globe. But I have good news. We have a really good king who's only going to serve one term, but it will have no end. Secondly, because Jesus fulfills the scriptures, we will study them with an eager heart and a curious mind. The more we know the Old Testament, the better we'll understand the New Testament. The more we understand the New Testament, the more we'll understand how the Old Testament prepares us. And in all of that, it comes together in Christ, who is the fulfillment of the plan of God. Because Jesus is our prophet, we will listen to him as he declares the truths of God and share them with others. We have a sure and steady word 
because we know the one who is the ultimate prophet of God. And because Jesus is our prophet, we will carry out the works of God in joyful and humble service to him. We will tell the truth. We will declare the works of God and the words of God. We will give warning for the impending judgment. We will also give hope for the impending vindication and glorification of the saints. And lastly, because Jesus is the high priest and the ultimate sacrifice for sin, we will rejoice in our forgiveness and go to him in guidance. Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and our king. And because he is, we have a sure foundation and a sure salvation, both for now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. How good it is, our God, to be reminded of the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so thank you for the truth of your word that reveals it to us. And thank you for the hope that your Holy Spirit gives us that not only is it true, it is transforming and it is comforting. And it gives our hearts the peace that we long for, our minds the rest that we need. And for that, we thank you for such a great salvation. But Father, this morning we are also mindful even as we gather around this table this morning, that we still have a great need of your grace, of your mercy. And we thank you for the forgiveness that is ours in Christ as we continue to confess our sins and turn to you, as we recognize our need for you. But would you grow in our hearts a deeper love for you, a deeper understanding of your word, and a greater desire to serve you ever more faithful. And Father, would you cause us to stand firm, even as all around us starts to give way, because we know that we're in good hands and we have a great future. Help us live today in light of the ultimate day, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might do so in a way that gives you great glory and honor as we commit ourselves to you anew and afresh, and as we pray in Jesus' name, amen.